Let me ask you if you would turn with me this evening to the 73rd Psalm. It's not often that we at the communion table continue on in a series. Of course, we're not always in a series on Lord's Day evenings. Frequently, we kind of address the text from the morning message in a devotional direction and bring our thoughts to the table. But this evening, I thought as we began last Lord's Day evening to look at the Psalms of Asaph, that this 73rd Psalm, the second of those at least in order as we find them in the Psalter, is an entirely appropriate Psalm for us to consider at the Lord's table. Asaph, I hope I can find it. I think I'm quoting Spurgeon. I'm quoting somebody. Uh, Hopefully along the way I'll come across the quotation again, but made the statement that Asaph often sang in the minor key. His psalms at times deal with issues of perplexity. Um, That's the case with this psalm, but it's not the case with regard to perplexity about conditions in the world and those type things. Maybe there's a, a shadow of that in this psalm, but The perplexity, the surprise, the confession in this psalm is really the psalmist looking at himself. It's certainly a psalm of self-examination. And the Lord's table is a place of self-examination. I feel like sometimes, and I don't know if your upbringing was like my own, but I feel like sometimes the Lord's table was pressed too far in that regard to self-examination. It was almost turned into a a Protestant confessional. We are to, though, examine ourselves, but then to understand and apply afresh the blood of Christ to our sins, to confess Him afresh as our Savior. And so I feel like this psalm is a worthy place for us to meditate as we come tonight around the table. Let us read together the familiar words of the psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They're corrupt and speak wickedly. Concerning oppression they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. 
And I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely Thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How were they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when Thou awakest, Thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before Thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with Thee. Thou hast holden me by Thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with Thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My heart and my, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from Thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from Thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all Thy works. As you look at the psalm, and we'll certainly be taking somewhat of an abbreviated look at the psalm this evening, but I think the opening phrase, the opening verse is a key to the psalm. The psalmist has already wrestled through this problem. He's already wrestled through the wanderings of his own heart. And the conclusion is to affirm with certainty, truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. He gives a lengthy confession of the temptation that he's found himself in. And if you look at verses 2-14, to he unfolds that. He's looked out at the wicked. He has given thought to their lives. The appearance, the outward appearance of their lives. In some cases, just things generally observable. He sees those that are in prosperity. He sees those that are enjoying the good things, as it were, of of life and of the world. He moves a little further and he wrestles with their attitude toward God and their carefree spirit, as it were. And it seems, as you look at verse 12, and he sees their prosperity, their increasing in riches, he's, he's struggling with what appears to be that they are they're at ease. The psalmist doesn't go at least directly in this line, but I'm always taken with a thought as I read and meditate on this psalm with, the fact that for a believer, and well, what the whole psalm is actually about, is inner conflict. Believers, I don't want to get into a difficult lesson in systematic theology, but believers have two natures. The difficult part of that is good and orthodox men wrestle over whether believers have two natures or just one, and a lot of it comes down to defining nature and so forth. But let's just say for now, yes. We have an old man and a new man. 
And we see a lot of the instruction in Scripture is to put off the old man. That's a war. It's a fight. It's a lifelong battle. And Paul demonstrates that in Romans 7. There's the old man to be put off and there's the new man to be put on. But there's a struggle that believers have that worldlings don't have. When we meet with temptation and the sins of this world, there is something in us that will answer to that. The old man can be drawn out after those things. The ungodly don't fight that war. Now They may think here and there, well, I might get in trouble if I do that. I might go to jail if I do that. I might lose my job if I do that, but it's about as deep as their struggles get. They just find that acceptable, sinful path that, of course, is ever-broadening in our world. and They run on with no conflict, no pangs of conscience. Does God know? Let's live. Go for the gusto. If you're old enough to remember those commercials, then you're getting pretty old. The believer, he has conflict. And this believer has been slipping He's been losing some battles with regard to his mindset and his heart as he looks at the world. And he actually uses the term, as we found there, being envious at the foolish. One I was reading, Derek Kidner, I I love his little two-volume set on the Psalms. Just such an economy of words. But he spoke about the devil's temptation. That even in Eden, in paradise, he comes alongside man and seeks to make him envious of something else. Here's where the psalmist is he's struggling with an envy of the world. Somehow their life is easier than His. Somehow their life, it seems, is more prosperous than His. Perhaps He is struggling and has some circumstances that aren't revealed in the psalm. And He sees others that care nothing for God and they don't have those problems. They don't have that type of poverty or need. And He is tempted and he struggles and he envies them. Those lengthy opening verses, I say down to the 14th, are a confession, a revelation of his temptation and the, the bad path of his thinking. But in verse 15 and the little section down to verse 17, he comes to a very sober realization. If I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. Again, there's implication here, but he's really wrestling with these thoughts and in some ways, It's an absence from the means of grace that has allowed him to come into this envious spirit. Or if not that, perhaps he has been 
going through the motions and attending the means of grace, well, if that be the case, there's a point in which the means of grace became a means of grace to his soul. And he realizes it, and he's shocked at himself. There's an interesting progression if you look in the psalm. It goes through the different sections that we're breaking off. But he looks at, he looks at the injuries, as it were, that his bad thinking, that his temptations have, have led to. The first one is that of himself. If you look in the second verse of the psalm, he speaks here of himself and says, As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He's seeing a fall that almost occurred. How dangerous it was for him that he allowed himself to go down this path in his thinking. But in verse 15, he comes alongside and sees an injury that he brings in this way to the Lord's people, to the church. He speaks here of offending against the generation of thy children. But When you come to verse 22, he comes as always we do when we're rescued from our sinfulness to see the real injury is against God. He said, I was as a beast before thee. It's like David in Psalm 51. I mean, it would take more than one sheet of paper to list the people that he had offended against. But he says in that portion of the psalm, against thee only have I sinned. And so here the psalmist, I say, recognizes just how far off he was. How these thoughts and these temptations and allowing them to take root in his heart has caused, I say, these injuries far beyond just himself. But I love that phrase in the 17th verse. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. I think sometimes we're, we drift into Arminian thinking very often. And we can see a phrase like that and think, well, yeah, but, but they're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. And that's true. But that hasn't fixed the thinking problem. There can be a warped view that yeah, they're having a great time here, but they're going to get it later. and I'm having a miserable time here, but it'll be a worth it when I... That's not gospel thinking. Gospel thinking understands that all this that he's been tempted to look at as prosperity and ease and pleasure is empty that they don't have anything to glory in now. Much less the end, which is just a culmination of now. What is eternity in hell? But ultimate and final separation from God. Sinners are separated from God now. They're not enjoying His presence now. They're not receiving the benefits of life now. Believers, whatever their circumstances, whatever their income level, whatever their physical health status, whatever their stage of life, whatever their problems in business, they're heirs of glory now. They're children of God now. 
They can enjoy the presence of God now. That's how one like Cowper can write in him, God moves in mysterious ways and understand, really believe, really appreciate and take in that behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. If you look at the closing two sections of the psalm, God's relationship to the wicked in verses 18-20, to He sets them in slippery places. He casts them down to destruction. They're brought into desolation as in a moment utterly consumed with terrors. You think of that day in which they want to call for the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But look from verse 21 to the end of the psalm. God's relation to the believer. He's pricked in heart. He sees how foolish he's been. His understanding allows his thinking to go now in the right direction. And there's an interesting progression here. He says, verse 23, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. When I was reading, pointed out that the Hebrew verb tenses aren't always, we might say, as watertight as we use them in English. But he said here, there's clearly progression with regard to past, present, and future. The fact that God has held us by His right hand. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What temporal problems, what temporal poverty, what temporal difficulties can erase or somehow minimize that truth? God has me and has forever had me in His hand. And then he speaks here about God's guiding. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. In many ways, this psalm is a record of the guidance of God through this life. That God doesn't allow His children to go but so far in their wrong thinking or their wrong living. The new man, back to the two nature stuff, is the real Christian. And God will not let us so surrender to the old man that there's no battle. There's no ultimate victory in coming away as He did to right understanding. But also He looks forward. He says at the end of verse 24, and afterward receive Me to glory. That's Enoch's word. God took him. God received him. And that 25th verse, young people, not so young people, 
That's a great verse to commit to memory. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. What can compare with God? What finite thing can be considered better, more fun, than the infinite. I know I said verse 1 is the, the key to the psalm, God's goodness to His people. But the closing phrase of verse 26, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, that was a phrase that was the inheritance of the Levites. They didn't receive an allotment of the land as it was distributed in the days of Joshua. And the Lord's comment to them is, I am your portion. Now you ponder that. Think of the richest person you know or you've ever heard of. Think of all the possessions they have. And you think of the fact that this life is a vapor. It appears for a little while and it vanishes away. But the infinite God of heaven, the creator of all things, has said, I am your portion. I'm your inheritance. You have it all. And it's no wonder this psalmist can use words like how foolish was I and ignorant. I wonder how often we find ourselves in the place of the psalmist allowing foolish and ignorant thinking a place within our hearts. In an age when the world and the devil have highly toned skills to present the lies that this psalmist was conflicted with. Well, let us take this inspired warning, this inspired case of self-examination and rejoicing to be brought out of near ruin. And as we come and apply such self-examination to the table, all of this God is our inheritance. God is our portion, not merely now, but yes, now, but forever. And in a place in His immediate presence where the scars and all the pieces of the curse are forever done away. Reading with our brother Greg different portions. One of them in Revelation just has that phrase, the former things. It's listed pain. It's listed a host of sinful things in this earth. The former things are done away. Well, I say as we come tonight and apply such self-examination, how is it that we're brought to that inheritance? what we commemorate in these elements. The body and blood of Jesus. 
curse. That our sin and these things we can be tempted to look at and, and envy. He paid for them with His body and blood. That instead of that ruin that He sees as the end of those He had once envied, we might receive eternal blessing in the presence of an infinite God forever. And so let us tonight happily say, without any thought of it depriving us of some of the stuff in life that other people get, let us happily say, if they don't get it, that's fine. Let us happily say, we're not our own. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price precious blood of Christ that I might enjoy Him forever. That I might be in His presence forever. At whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I trust the Lord will help us. And even through this observance of the Lord's table tonight, help us as the psalmist in the sanctuary of God to gain some understanding and rejoice all the more in our Savior. I want to ask you tonight to take our new supplement. One of the things that we added that we have had before is number nine in the supplement. Bonner's communion hymn we so often have sung the close of our gatherings. But there are two stanzas that we haven't had before stanzas three and four right in the middle and what I'd like to do is to sing the first three stanzas while the bread is distributed we'll pause and again have a moment of meditation silently together and then read the scriptures and pray together and then we'll sing the remaining three stanzas as the cup is distributed